0: with you everybody and hello on this wonderful Easter Sunday. Probably a little surprised to see me here, not Rod or Luke or even Jill or John or Sam here, but I imagine it's no surprise to come to a church on Easter Sunday and to hear somebody that is speaking about the resurrection. And that's exactly what I'll be seeking to do, looking at Matthew 28, jumping around the Bible a little bit to explore some topics that are related to that wonderful text, But I think there's a danger uh, today, Easter Sunday, particularly for those of us that have been Christians for a while, that it's just all a little bit too familiar and we gloss over the the significance of the resurrection. And yes, it's important, isn't it? We know that. Yes, it's wonderful. Yes, Jesus is back from the dead. And yes, we know it's significant for our faith. But... Isn't it wonderful to have a few days off? And uh, did we actually remember to get the grandkids some eggs and, you know, let's not get stuck in the holiday traffic? Um, They're more front and centre of our minds sometimes. But let's take a few moments tonight to consider the improbability and the implications of Jesus' resurrection, the sheer improbability, the extraordinary implications. So before we go any further, let's pray. Father, on this day, when we remember the resurrected Jesus, we pray that you would increase our gratitude, increase our trust and our allegiance. And we pray this for your sake and the expansion of your kingdom. So guide us tonight, please. Amen. Well, we know winter is approaching. Daylight saving is over. Well done if you got up at the right time this morning. And the football, that's all the codes, they're well and truly underway. And for some rugby league or AFL fans, that means Friday nights are well and truly sorted for the next six months. And for others, well, (laughs) who cares? (laughs) But look, I'm grateful to the marketing folk working for the NRL. They've come up with their 2021 slogan. There it is. I think it lends itself beautifully to Easter. The angle they take in their promotions is to show footage of players possibly plucking the ball out of the air, tackling speedy wingers, scoring really unlikely tries. But here it is, defy impossible. And Rod's not here, but he may disagree, and don't know, maybe some others. St. George playing well, is that almost defying impossible? <laughs> Not sure. Anyway, Easter, the resurrection, it's impossible but defied. Death has been reversed, it's impossible but defied. Matthew 28 is basically in three sections. Verses 1 to 10 cover some of the events and interactions of Jesus' resurrection. Verses 11 to 15 covers the description that has been perpetuated by the chief priests. Uh, Sorry, not the description, the deception perpetuated by the chief priests. And then 16 to 20, they're largely Jesus' words, which we now know as the Great Commission. Well, let's have a look at the beginning. Easter, Jesus' resurrection, improbable, we know, actually impossible, Defied because there's no viable, there's no logical, there's no scientific explanation. It is supernatural, isn't it? A strictly supernatural happening. And we know that Jesus' wasn't the first or the only resurrection to be detailed in Scripture. But his, as Luke records Jesus himself explaining in Luke 24, verses 45 and 6, is in keeping with God's purposes as revealed in the Old Testament. This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses. The prophets and the Psalms, the Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. I just want to pose a question tonight. Can one be a person of Christian faith if they find the resurrection, the bodily resurrection physical resurrection of Jesus too difficult to accept? And does it actually matter? Well, unambiguously, the answer is yes, it does. Christian faith, we read, hinges on an impossible event actually happening. And Paul bluntly says in 1 Corinthians 15, if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile, you are still in your sins. So if the resurrection didn't occur, if it was somehow fabricated, it's not just Jesus who is dead, but essentially Christians are. You are, I am. Here's Paul again. If we don't trust in the resurrection of both Jesus and indeed of ourselves to come, then quote, we of all people are to be pitied. So it matters. Can we trust that Paul got it right? Well, the early Christians, including the Gospel writers, plus Paul, had no doubt Jesus was physically raised. In 1 Corinthians 15, he lists a number of people who could verify that fact. He specifically mentions Peter and James, as well as himself, as being among 500 who had encounters with the risen Jesus. He was obviously confident that a range of witnesses would and could attest to the truth. So our faith, but also the veracity, the legitimacy of Christian faith, stands or falls on Jesus' bodily resurrection. But I wonder if there is still some part of us that maybe doubts, that doubts the impossible. I want to suggest that isn't God one who seems to delight and define the impossible? Massey makes it clear through his account of Jesus' death and resurrection that God's will is being fulfilled here. Jesus, fully God, fully human, obedient son of God, going to his death to accomplish God's saving purposes. And then, resurrection. Well, we considered the resurrection as impossible and defied But I think often in nuanced ways, God seems to also delight in defying norms and expectations. And doesn't God consistently upend expectations? And I think it's lovely to look at the passage and contrast the encounter that the Roman guards had with the angel and the encounter that the two Marys had with the angel. Or maybe there were two angels, as reported in John's Gospel. For the most fearless of fearless, that's the Roman guards, the sight of an angel who had just rolled back the stone to the tomb and is now sitting on it, renders them like dead men. But contrast this with what's described in the next couple of verses. Shortly afterwards, the same angel speaks with Mary and Mary. These women, who, as we know, were living in a world that often reduced or ignored their voices... After hearing from the angel, although afraid, they didn't collapse in shock. They heard, responded, acted. They were filled with joy and they ran to share the extraordinary news and then came face to face with the risen Jesus. That's quite a contrast. But I wonder what may be some of the implications for the resurrection. And I know, yes, that... Having the facts right and your doctrine correct is important. But how does it inform how we live? Here's a quote from John Piper. Nothing you will touch or feel or think today is apart from Christ. What can this mean but deep humility before such an all-encompassing, all-sustaining, all-governing person, and since he loves us, bring about absolute confidence. So reflect on that, please, for a moment. Whatever is going on in our lives, in affairs of state around the world, whether it's joyous or tragic, well, Jesus is across them, Lord and Sovereign. So I think the resurrection emboldens our confidence that God has the capacity also to put things right. The English writer, the former bishop, N.T. Wright, suggests that God's work in dealing with injustice hinges on the resurrection. He says justice is creation restored. The resurrection doesn't bring us back to the Garden of Eden, although Jesus' meeting with Mary Magdalene in the Garden does have some distant echoes of that. But he says it does introduce us to a whole new world, a world in which death itself shall be no more a world in which a new kind of justice has triumphed. And so even in this messy, this frequently painful, damaged and unfair world, we can trust Jesus, but deeply trust. I think we can live with some confidence and even a degree of audacity, daring to be countercultural. And why? Well, the impossible has been defined. Jesus is risen. And risen, working to make things right. And he is fully in control. A little look at verses 11 to 15. Noteworthy, I think, as they detail the lengths that the Jewish religious leaders were prepared to go to in trying to deny the resurrection. Lies fabricated. Disseminated bribes given to soldiers. story perpetuated. Jesus' disciples stole his body from in front of sleeping soldiers. Now, never mind that Matthew tells us at the end of chapter 27 that Pilate himself had ordered that the tomb be tightly secured. Now, the stone's large, and for the guards to neglect Pilate's orders, well, that would only normally cost them their life. And the chief priests, they knew the impossible had occurred. And they sensed the enormous implications. Well, perhaps not fully. Perhaps they didn't, at the time, grasp that uh, close on 2,000 years later, there'd be billions of people professing faith in the one they had just executed. And perhaps they couldn't quite grasp the incomprehensible impact that Jesus and his people would have on the world, but they knew enough to be fearful for their power and authority. And I want to suggest in lots of ways maybe how little things change. Now, 2021, we don't have to look far to see examples of the misuse of power, be they in spheres of politics or business or the church But if we're honest, also in community groups, in families. Then we can see through press conferences, public apologies, we can see through spin, biased media. We can see those in power are sometimes fearful, but it's going to be taken away. And unfortunately, too often, we see lies, misinformation, fake news, cover-ups, corruption, Straight out of the first century in the chief priest's playbook. So what do we make of this? Well, John 8.32, the truth will set you free, Jesus tells his disciples. Hold on to my teaching, he says, but I think first we must recognise who he is. Recognise the resurrected Jesus, the risen Jesus, and reject lies, embrace truth even if to most the truth seems impossible. And Jesus, when telling what we know now as the uh, parable of the tenants and alluding to his death, he quotes from Psalm 118. The stone the builders rejected is now the capstone, or sometimes we know it as the cornerstone. So remember N.T. Wright's observation. Nothing you will touch or feel or think today is apart from Christ. Jesus is all-encompassing, all-sustaining, all-governing, all-loving. And I wonder briefly if we would find it helpful to consider what impairs us from embracing the truth about Jesus. Is there misinformation or does the influence maybe of friends, family members, maybe social or even traditional media? Tend to divert us from Jesus, the risen Jesus, who is the capstone and central to everything. One day, if we need to make a few adjustments. Well, now to the final section of uh, Matthew's Gospel. And there are Jesus' words spoken to his disciples in what we know as the Great Commission. And they only appear in Matthew's Gospel. So these words have shaped. Uh, shaped history and countless lives. And I just wonder how many mission organisations, how many trips, how many programs and the like have referenced this passage. But a reminder of what we know, God's redemptive plan is threaded through Scripture. It's been highlighted all this year in the preaching at our church. We know that Jesus, the Messiah, Saviour, would lose his life. And we know that God's commitment The world, his redemptive plan will come to fruition. And his purposes are never thwarted, even by seemingly insurmountable occurrences. But they would be if Jesus stayed in that tomb, and God's plan stays unrealized if Jesus stays dead. So the resurrection is critical to the fulfilling of God's promises. Remember, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. That's an extraordinary statement. All authority. Again, there's nothing apart from, beyond, and in the reach and care of the risen Jesus. And then we find this imperative from Jesus make disciples. Disciples, people whose allegiance is with Jesus, and those who trust him for their forgiveness and their salvation, people that are committed to being caught up in his purposes. So let's consider a couple of angles as we contemplate our part in the making of disciples. And firstly, I think we want a desire that we want people to be exposed to and respond to the gospel. We want people to recognise their need for forgiveness and to place their trust in Jesus. And I. I think it's important that we recognise that under our strengths, we can't do that. That's not going to happen. We're not the ones making this occur. That's God's doing. He changes hearts. But what a privilege to be tasked with being part of God's redemptive plans for the world, to have a role in calling people to know and trust Jesus. Now that gives purpose and meaning and significance to our lives. And for us, as we have conversations, as we forge relationships, shouldn't one of our primary endeavours be underpinning them in prayer? Because isn't the greatest thing that could ever happen to anyone is that they're in relationship with Jesus. But I wonder, are your prayers sometimes, like mine seem to be, And that is, I set the bar too low. I pray for various matters, usually completely worthwhile, like health or for opportunities for people in life. But I tend to go light on praying for a changed heart and for people to be saved. And perhaps it would help for me and maybe us to keep John 10.10 in mind when Jesus said, I've come to help you out a bit marginally improve your lot? Obviously not. What did he say? He said, I've come to give life. Give it to the full. And let's pray that that's the reality for people. Life to the full. I think the second angle to consider isn't just getting people over the line, so to speak, or making an initial commitment to Jesus and then moving on. Being a disciple, that's a lifelong process of being moulded by God to be more aware, more obedient, more faithful. So, what's it look like if we're participating in that process of making and developing disciples? And I want to suggest that given we've already discussed that there's nothing that Jesus isn't interested in or should be lord over, well, that leaves an enormous scope for people to be involved in his purposes, in pretty much every endeavour of life. And there's so many ways we could respond. Maybe a start is to gratefully acknowledge that faith is a gift and then to invite God to guide and work through us. A couple of days ago, in the car, Anna and I were listening to a podcast from Jenny Salt. She works at SNBC and she interviewed a woman called Corrine Woodhouse who's currently working with SIM to address the evils of people trafficking, and she asked how people could respond, and Corrine responded with words that I think can be applied to a whole range of situations, and she simply said, ask God what he would have you think and feel, and then how he would have you respond in a particular situation. And isn't there a huge range of issues for us to do just that in, and we constantly require God's wisdom. And tonight's not the time to go into any detail, but we know that gross injustices happen and are happening locally, internationally. We know there's systemic disadvantage for many. We know our environment is being degraded and the voiceless are often the first to suffer. We know the fabric, the bedrock of society is being buffeted. And does God care? And can he act? Yes, absolutely yes. If you're fortunate enough to be here on Friday in the Stone Church and heard Rod speak and you want another way of considering that question, then bring to mind the obedience, the love and power shown by Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. So let me ask, has, or maybe is God calling you to be a voice or have a presence as a disciple in a particular field and point to his kingdom? And if so, fantastic. That's great. Perhaps there's a sphere of life that you do or that you can have significance in as you work to help people see that Jesus is Lord. And then T. Wright again picks up this idea with observations about the resurrection driving the work of justice. The risen Jesus has won the victory over injustice and now sends his followers to work on the multiple projects of the new creation, restorative, healing, life-giving projects. And doesn't every facet, every facet of our world need godly, active people contributing? I think another significant facet of being a disciple is the importance of community. Because going it alone, I find, is overwhelming, is exhausting. So it goes without saying, Christian community is important to me. And where do I have a conversation about what's really, uh, what really matters to me, or how I'm really going, or what spurs me on? Well, it's less likely to be with family and neighbours. It's more likely to be with you, or Christian friends from other churches, or those involved with TEA, or the like. And as we know, numerous initiatives run through this church that all contribute to making and growing disciples. Bible study groups, open church, playgroup, under the cedar, chats at the Ori, for example, and what's in common, all require community. And contemplating the role of the church, community and discipleship, and engaging actively in God's purposes caused me to remember an address that I heard years ago from Chris Marshall. Chris is a theologian from New Zealand, but the gist of it has stayed with me, and he was discussing the Beatitudes. You know them: blessed are the poor in spirit, those who mourn, etc. I think I had previously viewed them as some sort of checklist. I was thinking, was I being meek, was I showing mercy, acting as a peacemaker, etc. But Chris was emphasising the corporate nature of faith, the importance of community in the church, and he said as an individual it's impossible to tick off so-called compliance with all the Beatitudes, but he suggested in Christian community he thought it was realistic that at any given time they each were being taken seriously. And outworked. And as I consider our church, for example, yes, I know that among us there's mercy being shown. There's efforts in peacemaking. There are those who do face persecution standing up for what's right. And several of us do mourn, but do receive comfort. And that's just a start. It's a community, critical for our development as disciples. God's redemptive purposes, which we've discussed, were fortunate to be included in. Well, they gathered faith with the coming of Jesus and obviously continued with his earthly ministry. But it may have seemed that following his death and resurrection and ascension, that the mission, redemptive mission, had to continue without Jesus. But no, that's not the reality. And surely, I am with you always to the very end of the age, Jesus said. The final words in Matthew 28. It's the impossible is defied, he's risen, and death doesn't divert God's purposes. In some ways, thanks to the resurrection, it's really just the beginning. Throughout last year, courtesy of a bit of study at SMBC, I enjoyed the opportunity to delve into Acts and Revelation and for me one of the really big takeaways was an increased appreciation that the risen Jesus is highly active. Still, he is directing, still, the events of history, the events of life. And through Acts and Revelation, particularly his letters to the seven churches, it's very clearly apparent that Jesus, the risen Jesus, is continuing to outwork God's purposes. And as we draw to a close, let me suggest we know that being a person of faith doesn't solve all problems, doesn't fix all relationships, doesn't mend all hurts and right all wrongs, but we have the priceless opportunity to partner with God and with each other, and to live with reassurance and confidence, confidence that Jesus is risen, that he is Lord and God, and he is in the process of working out all his promises and good purposes. The resurrection guarantees that. The impossible, it's been defied, and it's right to have hope. And I'll conclude by reflecting on hope And drawing on some beautiful comments from the writer of Hebrews in chapter 6, and hope in God's certain promises is like an anchor for our souls, firm and secure, all due, all made possible by the risen Jesus. Because the impossible has been defied. Have the audacity today to hope. sure hope. We have an anchor for our souls. The foundations are secure. We can live well. We can dream. Jesus is wisdom and our hope is secure.